Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus. Increment 2.17, we will be going to Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. And this is part 7 of a series within our We See Jesus series, which will be called, is called, The Kind of Archpriest We Need. Now, this message is as close as we'll get to what we call Memorial Day. And recently I saw this on a t-shirt. And it's quite a long message for on a t-shirt, but it was, I think, appropriate for our time, and I'll explain why, for Memorial Day. What is a veteran? A veteran, whether active duty, discharged, retired, or reserve, is someone who at one point in their life wrote a blank check made payable to the United States of America for an amount of up to and including their life. That is honor. And there are too many people in the country today who no longer understand that fact. Now to the message on that t-shirt, I would certainly give a resounding amen. For those who gave the last full measure, those are the ones who are recalling and remembering on Memorial Day, that check was cashed in full. That's why this day each year, a grateful nation expresses their gratitude to them. We're among those who do understand. I'm speaking for Tetelestai Phalanx, I'm speaking for myself. We are among those who do understand. Recently, Specialist Bishop E. Evans, a field artilleryman with the Texas National Guard, exhibited this kind of sacrifice, dying while rescuing two illegal migrants from drowning. Now, those of us who know and believe in Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, can hardly help but turn our attention to God the Father, who has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, a rescue that came at inestimable cost and sacrifice to the Father and to his Son. God the Father wrote the biggest check of all. We've been bought with a price. So let's glorify God in our bodies, which are his. That is honor. We are now in him, God's son, Jesus Christ, who is crowned with glory and with honor because of the suffering of death which he endured to rescue us from the wages of sin, an unspeakable kind of death, and from this present evil age. And Father, for this we are very grateful. And as we stand on the verge 
of a national holiday which recalls and remembers those who paid the last full measure. We think and we must think of the sacrifice that you gave when you gave your son, the sacrifice that he gave when he gave himself. I pray that today's message will bring glory to you, Father, inasmuch as it is to the honor and glory of your Son. And so, into your hands, O God of truth and reality, I entrust my spirit and the spirit of all those who will be spirit-taught through this message. And do so in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to give, first of all, a working translation. That means a translation we can work with when I take a kind of a glance or first glance or first look at the first couple of verses in Hebrews 8. I've come up with this working translation. We're going to work to amplify it, expand it, accurize it, and we'll do so as we continue in our theological, Christological exegesis of this marvelous heavenly homily. The working translation I have so far of Hebrews 8, 1 and 2 goes like this. Now, the summing up of what we are saying is this. And that's the word I'm going to key in on today, summing up, which is a translation, my translation of the word kephaleon, kephaleon, K-E-P-H-A-L-A-I. O-N. And that word kephaliaon or kephaliaon is has as a root word in it the word kephale, which is often translated head, as in Christ is head of the body. Kephaliaon. And this is the word we're going to key in on today, kephalion. That's an Omicron O, K-E-P-H-A-L-A-I-O-N, for those who are looking or listening in the audio, kephalion. And with the Greek root word, kephale, meaning head. So I call that the summing up. Now, the summing up of what we are saying is this. We have an archpriest who is of such significance, now you're going to see how I came to that conclusion about that word, of such significance that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Verse 2, a minister in the holy places and in the real tent which the Lord set up, not man. That's our working translation. Kephalion is the headline, we might say. And Jesus, our exalted archpriest, is the headliner of Hebrews. Hebrews itself is an intensely and even radically Christological and Christocentric sermon. Kephalion, again, is from the Greek word kephale, which looks like this in the Greek text, K-E-P-H-A-L-E, A to E, kephale, 
or kafale, if the translation is correct, that has the accent on the last syllable. Kafale means head, or kafale means head, as in the following sentences. Listen carefully. Christ is the head of the body, the messianic community, head there being kafale, or kafale. Or, Christ is the head of principalities and powers, head being kafale. Or, try this one on, Christ is the head of every man. Now this is going to become extraordinarily significant. That's 1 Corinthians 11.3, but I'll give the verses in a moment. Considerably significant is the fact that Christ is the head of every man. That is literally true because of the radical alteration of the human situation that occurred in Jesus Christ and him crucified. So we have Christ is the kafale of every man. Another simple declarative sentence, which we take from the scriptures, Christ is the head over all. Or we have this, God is the head kafale of Christ. Now, every one of these brief declarative sentences are scripturally accurate, using the word kephale, which is the root word of the word kephaleon, which is the first word in our Greek text that we're examining of Hebrews 8.1. Ephesians 1.22 and 23, and Colossians 1.18, Colossians 2.10, 1 Corinthians 11.3a, Ephesians 1.22, and 1 Corinthians 11.3b is where I got all those scriptural declarative sentences. In every case, the head, kephale, is declared to be that which is over something, and more importantly, that which comprises something ultimately. God is the head of Christ in that God comprises Christ, even as in Christ all of God, or all of the Godhead, as it's called in Colossians 2.9, exists or is bodily. Christ is the head of the body, somatos, called the church or the messianic community, not only as the Lord and therefore the head of the community, but as he in whom the community is comprised and who comprises the community. As Colossians 3.11 says, Christ is all and in all, referring to that renewed human community. So kephale also happens to be the root of the verb anakephaleao. And that, I'm going to write that one down too because that's an extraordinarily significant word in our understanding of the universal recapitulation that God has willed. And that is A-N-A. And then here it is, K. E-P-H-A-L, there's the root right there, kephal, and then A-I 
O, Omega O. Ana Kepha Laya'o. Ana Kepha Laya'o, which is deployed in a verse that I often quote and cite and will in the future, hopefully, Ephesians 1.10, describing the mystery of God's great intention to, what, sum up all things, recapitulate all things. Ana Kephale Uh-oh. Anakephalaya'o. Again, that term is deployed in Ephesians 1.10, describing the mystery of God's great intention in Ephesians 1.9 to sum up all things universally, chronologically, and extensionally in Christ. This is something that God has already done in terms of the situation of all things that exists in God now, but which has yet to be done as far as the condition of all things, an alteration of the condition of all things. Anakephalaio in Ephesians 1.10 refers to, again, the recapitulation or the gathering or summing up of all things, both in the heavens and earth, so that all things are to be comprised of Christ. And because Christ is comprised of God, then all things will finally and ultimately be in God and God in all things. So if we change this word slightly to make it a noun, we have anakephaliosis. Anakephaliosis. That's a word I like better than the now fairly famous term apocatastasis. Anakephaliosis. Anakephaliosis is a term that is even more comprehensive than apocatastasis, which means restoration and refers to the universal restoration or the restoration of all things that was and is the subject of God's voice speaking in all of the holy prophets from time immemorial, according to the Apostle Peter's inspired sermon at the beautiful gate at the temple complex in A.D. 30 Jerusalem. That's where we get the word apocatastasis, Acts 3.21. Again, I think our word anakephaliosis, the root word of which is kephale in Ephesians 1.10, is a better term only because it's more comprehensive and because it speaks not only of restoration but of the summing up of all things in Christ, who is the head of all things. So because God is the head of Christ, this means that all things will be summed up in God so that God will be all in all. Now what we're doing here is essentially kind of a word study of kephalion, which is the key word in Hebrews 8.1. What are we doing then? We're doing an exegesis of Hebrews, but a theological 
exegesis of Hebrews. That's why I'm spending a little time on the word kephaleon, the root word of which is kephale, which is also the root of the complex word anakephaleao. Anakephaleao is used only twice in the whole Greek Bible, both times in the New Testament, both times in a very significant position to describe a very significant concept. In Ephesians 1.10, as we've just seen, it's used for the summing up and constituting of all things in Christ. The second usage of it is Romans 13.9, where it refers to the summing up and constituting of all the commandments of the law in the simple, comprehensive commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the sum total of, the summing up of, the whole Torah. Jesus said that all of the law, and and in fact all the prophets too, depend on this commandment. And together with the first commandment, which is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. We find this in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 40. <clears throat> now Paul cites only the commandment about love for one's neighbor, which comes from Leviticus nineteen eighteen, because it's understood that it is indivisible from loving God with one's whole heart, soul, and mind. How can we say we love our we love God and hate our brother? It can't be done because the two commandments are indivisible. So both are part of the single gift of God's own love. Romans five five. However you analyze it, Jesus is at the heart and center of all that is comprised of him or will be. In fact, Jesus Christ and him crucified is the heart and center and the substance and the center, the very essence and spirit of the scripture. He is the heart and center of all the scripture. He is the heart and center of the Hebrews' homily, specifically. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the very same one as Jesus Christ and him having been buried. The same as Jesus Christ and him resurrected. Jesus Christ and him exalted at the right hand of the majesty above all the beings in heaven at the right side of the majesty in heaven. Now, if Jesus is exalted above every being in the heavens, then he is obviously above every being on earth. He is the head of all things and all beings. And because of this, the situation of all things and all beings has already been altered. And the condition of all things is about to be radically altered. The condition of all things as they appear to us now is to be radically altered 
by being summed up in him. For this reason, and for the reasons I just gave above, I would begin to translate the first clause of Hebrews 8.1 this way, this clause being kephaleon di epitois legomenois. Now the summing up of what we are saying is this. That's the first clause of our verse, Hebrews 8.1. Now, de, de, the summing up, kephaleon, of what we are saying is this. Saying is uses the word lego, simply communicating, saying. And then, so kephaleon is usually translated, in, if you go to many of your English translations, modern English translations, kephaleon is usually translated as something like the principal point, the chief point. The main point, I saw all those in just looking at a few English translations. William Lane breaks a little from the pack, and he calls it the crowning affirmation. But I'm inclining a little bit toward the New Testament, a literal translation from the Syriac Peshito version by James Murdoch in 1851, which is published by Robert Carter and Brothers in New York, he has the sum, not just not the chief or the main point, the principal point, but the sum, S-U-M. So does the King James Version. So does Young's literal translation. So either main point or summary are the chief contenders for this translation. Main point and summary, those are the chief contenders. Given our analysis, though, I'd go with the sum. Writers sometimes helpfully begin a paragraph with the words, to sum up, or they might say, in short. And when you read these words, if you were struggling with what the writer was trying to get across up to that point, you might say, all right, he's going to put this in a nutshell for me. And you might be a little relieved. In fact, there's even an academic Latin term for the phrase, in a nutshell. And I kind of like the, the Latin phrase because it's a little succinct. And it's simply, in nuce. I-N and then N-U-C-E. In nuce. In a nutshell. So we might say, what is Hebrew's in toto Latin phrase? And I'm not trying to be an academician because I'm not. But we would say in its totality. I like the concision of this or the succinctness of the Latin phrase. And that's why I like the word in toto. Hebrew's in toto. Hebrew's in its totality. We might say, ask the question, what is Hebrew's in toto? In its totality. We might say, what, is, what are the scriptures? In total, we know that all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness, in righteousness. So we might say, what is the scripture or what is the message of the scripture in total? And that's what I like to do. I did it with Rev the Book. What is the message of Rev the Book in total? But I think it's just as important to say, what is the message of Rev the Book? What is the message of Hebrews in Nuche? What is 
The, what is Hebrews in Nuche, in a nutshell? And so the writer is saying, this is what we have up to now in Nuche, in Nuche, in a nutshell. And I think that kind of really captures the sense here of in summary. So there's an academic term that we'll use in Nuche. Main point, crowning affirmation, they're okay. I think some or the summing up is slightly better. Kephalion has been translated also as pith. When you want a short answer, but an answer that is full of meaning, you'll say, keep it pithy. Pith, P-I-T-H. And that's a good translation also of this. Pith means both summary and central part. Heart or essence. And we could say that it is the substance and center of all that the author has been saying, both up to this point and onward. Because this word, kephalion, has both a retrospective about what he has been saying up to this point, Hebrews 8.1, but it also has a prospective meaning and direction about what he's going to say for the rest of the epistle. So this word really has a center, uh, sum and substance and center. Keep those words in mind. The pith, the essential essence of what is being said. We have a high priest, an archpriest of such significance. His name is Jesus. Such significance that he's seated. Not in Moses' seat, but in God's throne. So pith, P-I-T-H, means both summary and central part, heart or essence. We could say that it is the substance and center of all that the author has been saying, both up to this point and onward from here. Since as we'll see the word, which we're not going to deal with today, but I'll just simply introduce, kind of like Toyota, only it's T-O-I, Toyotas or Toyotas coming up and that gives it a kind of a prospective direction t-o-i-o-t-o-s toy-otas and make that toy-utas rather t-o-i-o-u-t-o-s we're going to be seeing in not in this message but in our future exegesis that toy-utas is referring to what might be translated as of such significance, toyutas, which has both a retrospective and prospective sense in the homily. And that is according to A.T. Robertson on Hebrews 8.1. As usual, and as it should be, Jesus is the sum and substance, the point and the pith of the scriptures. On this point, let's ask if this is the case, and it is obviously, let's ask if this is the case, then how should every scripture, 
be interpreted. Even scriptures that seem to be out there and isolated from this center and substance, this pith and point of scripture. Even verses that seem to be out there and isolated and far out. How should they be interpreted? That is, I'll put it this way. Should not every scripture verse, every scripture verse, or every scripture passage be interpreted with Jesus as the sum and substance as well as the heart and center of the biblical message. Can we afford to interpret any passage of scripture, say the sheep and the goats parable, apart from this heart and center of Jesus Christ and him crucified. If not, then maybe the Son of Man seated on a glorious throne is the same as Jesus crucified on a Roman cross as judge and judged. Get the point? As usual. And this is a great message for future pastors, future preachers, as well as present preachers, and to all of us. Jesus is the sum and substance, the point and the pith of Scripture, so all Scripture should be interpreted with that in mind, as Jesus himself said, these testify of me. We'll see this in a moment, even more clearly, I hope. I'm going to get a little bit historical, and in getting historical, bring us up to the level of our own time, the theological level of our own theological time, we might say. A major mistake, and a dangerous one, is made when we try to interpret any verse or any passage of the inspired Holy Scripture apart from its substance and center, that being Jesus Christ himself. Now, this made me recall a quote that, a quotation that happened in one of Richard Hayes's excellent books, the book that really helped me along more than any other book on understanding the meaning of the subjective genitive phrase, the faith of Christ or the faithfulness of Christ. He quotes a Ebeling, a German scholar named Ebeling, E B E L. ING, who said this about the Reformers. And we're going to consider the Reformers. That's the Reformation era and the Reformers that include Zwingli, Melanchthon, Calvin, most famously, and Luther. But here's what he said about the Reformers. The Reformers' understanding of faith had no effect on the formation of Christology. Now, Christology is what we're mainly concerned with here in Hebrews and maybe even in all the scriptures. Not maybe, but we are. So he says the reformer's understanding of faith had no effect on the formation of Christology. That means that, and I'm going to, I am going to unapologetically interpret what he's saying, the Reformation didn't really contribute much to Christology. And... Because of that, 
their doctrine of justification didn't have a Christological interpretation. Therefore, they interpreted it as the personal faith of individual people. And that, to me, is a serious, serious problem. So let me start the quote again. The Reformers' understanding of faith had no effect on the formation of Christology, not at least in normal church dogmatics. Hence the difficulty, says Ebeling, of maintaining the strict inner connection between Christology and the doctrine of justification. The Christology mostly does not lead by any compelling necessity to the doctrine of justification, and the latter in turn leaves it an open question how far Christology is really needed as its ground. Now, to me, that what he's saying here, the gist of what I think he's saying, the pith of what I think he's saying here, is that the Reformation, because it didn't connect the doctrine of justification specifically with Jesus Christ, and that means, in my case, in my understanding, Jesus Christ's faithfulness, it didn't really give us the real, full doctrine of justification. You can't skimp on Christology and expect the proper interpretation of any doctrine, whether it's a salvation, justification, sanctification, creation. Now, referring to the Reformation, Karl Barth, in his own church dogmatics, it's interesting, Evelyn used the phrase church dogmatics, Karl Barth's Magnum Opus is called Church Dogmatics. In it, he also spoke of, quote, the lack of attention which was then paid to Christology, speaking of the Reformation era. Now, you can be as excited as you want about the Reformation and the Reformers. I'm not excited about it or them because of the lack of attention on Jesus Christ, for one thing. Elsewhere, Barth, speaking of one of the reformers, John Calvin, wrote this, quote, like the other reformers, he was not always at his best when dealing with eschatology. Now, if the reformers came up short on Christology and eschatology, that seems to me to be a couple of very important shortcomings, which means there should be, hopefully, an advance on Reformation doctrine on the level of our time, we hope. And there has been, thank God. There has been theological advance, exegetical advance, and... I think in response to the lack of eschatology in the Reformation, there has been the formation of a lot of weird eschatologies to try to fill in the lacuna, the the gap, the lack, as we've seen. And so I'm speaking now on the level of our own time, in the theological level of our own time, on these things. The lack of attention paid to Christology which is the word about Christ, as Colossians 3.16 would put it, that's particularly problematic. 
when it comes to the interpretation of the Holy Scriptures themselves. Because it would be easy to fall into the dangerous snare of attempting to interpret verses or passages of the inspired Scripture in isolation from Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ being what Barth rightly refers to as the substance and center of Scripture. See, he's getting close to what we're talking about here, the pith and the heart, the sum and the essence, uh, the spirit, as it's called, the spirit of prophecy is Jesus. Jesus is the spirit, which means the substance and center of prophecy, and that means of the whole word of God, all of Scripture's. And so, Barth rightly refers to Jesus as the substance and center of scriptures in agreement with the angelic assessment in Revelation 19.10 that we dealt with in some detail in Rev the book. Quote, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit. Now, penuma there means substance and center of prophecy. Spirit, the substance and center of prophecy. So, I could translate 19.10 the angelic words, as the testimony of Jesus is the substance and center of prophecy. That's the whole word of God. And I could also add to that, more importantly, Jesus' own testimony from his own lips, speaking to those who prided themselves as searchers of the scriptures. You search the scriptures, he said, but you don't come to me. He said of the scriptures, simply, they testify about me, John 5.40. So to allege to know the scriptures, and this is going to sting, it should sting. It, sting, it stings me, it stings, should sting a lot of preachers. To allege to know the scriptures and yet not to know them or interpret them as the testimony of Jesus is to err, E-R-R, -R, to make a big mistake, not really knowing the scriptures. You can have your Bible open. You can read 10 chapters a day of it. You can say you know the scriptures. You've known them since you were a child. You've memorized them. It doesn't mean anything at all. If you interpret it apart from their substance and radical center, Jesus himself. The danger of interpreting the scriptures apart from the substance and radical center, Jesus himself, is illustrated, as I've mentioned and alluded to earlier, in the interpretation of the Son of Man. This is an example. It's a glaring example. The Son of Man in his glory, judging the nations which are separated into sheep and goats. Remember that one? Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Now, if the enthroned Son of Man is not seen and proclaimed to be Jesus Christ in him crucified, and the knowledge is lacking that Jesus endured the judgment of both the sheep and the goats, then the appalling conclusions arise of a double predestination and the irreversible irremediable fate of millions in hell. Those are abominable conclusions that arise from interpreting the scriptures apart from their substance and 
center, their kephaleon. This is but one of thousands of examples of the danger of interpreting the scriptures in isolation from their substance and center, their essential spirit, their beating heart, Jesus himself. Now to have our minds opened in Luke 24, 45, my biggest prayer for all of you and for myself, to have our minds opened to understand the scriptures. To have our minds open to understand the scriptures is to have them opened to the substance and center of the scriptures and to understand them in the light of Jesus Christ and him crucified and to know nothing apart from, and that means interpret no scripture apart from Jesus Christ and him crucified. This opening of the mind to understand the scriptures was performed by Jesus himself. He's the one who said to the deaf ears, be opened. He's the one who said to the closed minds, be opened. He performed the opening of the minds of the disciples to understand the scriptures following his resurrection from the dead. That's Luke 24, 45. Read that verse. Pray it as a prayer for yourself and your family, your children, your parents, your loved ones. Jesus still performs this wonderful service for us through the Holy Spirit. Often this opening of our minds to understand the scriptures, at least in my case, is gradual. It's progressive. And the result of it is seeing more and more the scriptures in the light of Jesus as the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shining into our hearts, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. So therefore, I've been accused over the years of changing. Well, why don't you go to Rick's church anymore? First of all, it's not Rick's church. Secondly, the answer is, in one case, he changed. Well, okay, that's a pretty hefty accusation there. Of course I changed. If you don't change, it's you're not growing. And I don't mean change on the cardinal doctrines of the scriptures, on who Jesus is, on his divinity, his deity, the triune God, and the the so-called cardinal doctrines. But we change our perspective, for example, our horizon and our perspective on the extent of salvation in Jesus Christ. Of course, if we don't, what are we doing? We've had a moving viewpoint. And so when someone said, he's changed, then I would take that as a compliment. The lack of attentiveness to Christology led many, and someone would say, why don't you go to that church anymore? And they say, because it's not live anymore, because they don't understand that not being live is God's purpose right now, and for many reasons most of which I don't understand, some of which I do very much understand. Now, the lack of attentiveness to Christology, back to the main point, (laughs) main point, get it? The lack of attentiveness to Christology led many of the reformers to conclude that justification, that's a pretty important doctrine, is the result of one's personal faith rather than of Jesus' faithfulness. Lack of Christology did that. 
Lack of attentiveness to Christology, to Jesus Christ did that. So it is the doctrine of justification that the lacuna, L-A-C-U-N-A, or lack of Christology, is most problematic. Because in the Reformation doctrine of justification, soteriology, their soteriology is insufficiently Christological. Therefore, Christocentric. It's insufficiently Christocentric. I get a kick out of people who say, I'm Christocentric. No, you're not. If your doctrines, including soteriology, are not Christologically determined, don't tell me or don't tell people in your congregation that you're Christocentric or even suggest that you might be because you're not. You're not. One cannot truly be Christocentric if one cannot and does not trace the act of justification to Jesus Christ and his faithful obedience to the death of the cross in such a way that it removes any human action or even human decision other than the decision of the human Jesus Christ from the equation. Preachers may brag that they believe in verbal plenary inspiration. That's another one of the scriptures. Thinking that this establishes them as immune from error. I cannot be in error about anything because I believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the scriptures. Thinking that this establishes them as immune from error while they err greatly and constantly in interpreting thousands of scriptures in isolation from their center and substance Jesus Christ. Well, so much for human pride and the ministry. So much for human pride and ignorance of the scriptures as well as ignorance of the power of God. Another lacuna, L-A-C-U-N-A, lack, gap, shortcoming, in the Reformers' doctrine was the lack of a cogent eschatology. Now, here's where we get something on the level of our time. This is going to sting, too. It stung me a while ago. Attempts to remedy this deficiency of eschatology unfortunately led to a false emphasis on eschatology apart from Christology. In other words, it led to an eschatology that is not Christologically determined. This led in, turn to, led in turn to systems of eschatology which plague the church to this very day, one of which is one that I held to dearly and emphatically before I changed. And that's the dispensational scheme which predicts the imminent rapture of the church, followed by the seven-year great tribulation, which ends with the second coming of Christ, followed by the millennium, then the last judgment, the great white throne judgment, 
and the discarding of masses of humanity into the everlasting lake of fire. Well, thanks for filling in the reformational gap on eschatology. There are variations on this theme, of course. There are premillennialists who believe that the 1,000-year millennium, literally, where Christ rules with the saints on earth, is future and comes after the seven-year great tribulation, which follows the rapture of the church. These are pre-tribulational rapturists. The, the titles become more and more complicated. Then there are the post-tribulational rapturists who believe that the rapture of the church is coetaneous with the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation, followed by the 1,000-year millennium. Among these are those who believe that we are in that great tribulation now. This group has to change their tune, speaking of changing. They have to change their tune from generation to generation to make the events of their own time be the events of this prophesied great tribulation and the infamous persons or institutions of their time to fit the identities of the beast or the antichrist, the false prophet, the whore of Babylon, etc. Then there are the innovators. They came along and separated the tribulation into two halves. The first being a time of deception and testing, the last being a period of the wrath of God, with the church being raptured, pre-wrath, not pre-tribulation per se, but pre-wrath. Add to this mix the partial rapturists who believe that only part of the church will be raptured, and lo and behold, it's usually that part that they themselves represent. These groups and others have not added at all to the hope of the hopeless, nor to the unity of the body of Christ. None of these factions represent true eschatology. It can be easily argued that a lack of a cogent eschatology in the reformers is better than the often obsessive and fragmenting systems that have come forward to fill the shortcoming in the Reformation. In other words, it might have been better just to leave it alone. But, of course, there is a true eschatology, and the only true eschatology is, and this, I'm going to close with this point, essentially, is a Christologically determined eschatology, which has to become the summing up of all things in Christ. Now, I'd almost conclude that it's a waste of time even to identify and briefly define the strange doctrines of these various factions. However, for two reasons, it isn't time wasted. And both of them are kind of pastoral reasons. One, new or young believers may be confused and tossed around by these various winds of men's doctrines and need to identify them as errors. Two, heresies have to exist and even be identified as well as the factions that tout them, 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, 2 Timothy 2, 17 to 18, and they should be identified in order to accentuate by contrast the approved doctrine, which in this case, in eschatological case, is the Christologically determined eschatology, which relates to the anakephaliosis 
of everything in the heavens and earth. So in this case, the approved doctrine that God wants to accentuate on the level of our time and in our own time is a Christologically determined eschatology which proclaims, along with all the prophets from time immemorial, the restoration of all things in Acts 3.21, which will be brought about in its full manifestation when Jesus appears a second time and when all things in the heavens and on earth are gathered up in him to be comprised of him. What is needed is a Christologically dash or hyphen determined eschatology as well as a Christologically determined soteriology. We have both of these in Hebrews. So far we have this translation of Hebrews 8.1, the first part. Hebrews 1.8a, 8.1a rather, the following. Now the summing up of what we are saying is this. What's to follow is the this. That's summing up as we will see, we'll see this. It has everything to do with Jesus, whose significance is both universal and saving. It is both eschatological and soteriological and universal too. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to engage in what we began with Hebrews and are continuing by your grace alone and by your mercy. We are continuing in a theological, Christological exegesis of this wonderful heavenly homily. Make it relevant to our time, Father. Use it to draw the attention of countless people to the person of Jesus Christ and him crucified. I ask it in his name, amen.